Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Mattimore Cronin, and today we're discussing the remnant. The remnant is this really interesting concept that dates all the way back to the Bible, to the book of Isaiah, and I recently found out about it through the writings of Alexander Svetsky. He wrote two articles for Bitcoin Magazine. The first one is titled, Bitcoiners are the remnant, the masses don't matter. And the second one is called, The Remnant, the Parasite, and the Masses. And these articles are both definitely worth reading. And the original story is the book of Isaiah, also known as Isaiah's Job. And you can read this story in the Mises Institute. And so for today's episode, I want to talk about this concept of the remnant and what it can help us to understand about the present and the future. And so in the original story of the remnant in the book of Isaiah, the story begins at the end of King Uzziah's rule. King Uzziah had ruled for a very long time over a prosperous, peaceful empire, but now that peace was coming to an end. And it's very similar actually to where we are right now with the monetary system, how we've had this long period of peace and prosperity, but now things are starting to look a little bit worrisome. And so at the end of this kingdom, the Lord comes to Isaiah and tells him that he is to warn the people of all the wrath and all the tough times to come. And the Lord says, quote, Tell them what is wrong and why and what is going to happen unless they have a change of heart and straighten up. Don't mince matters. Make it clear that they are positively down to their last chance. Give it to them good and strong and keep on giving it to them. I suppose perhaps I ought to tell you, he added, that it won't do any good. The official class and their intelligentsia will turn up their noses at you and the masses will not even listen. They will all keep on in their own ways until they carry everything down to destruction, and you will probably be lucky if you get out with your life. So Isaiah is a little bit perplexed now because the Lord tells him his mission is to go warn everyone about the wrath that's to come, but then he also tells them no one's going to believe him. And so he asks why should he go and spread this word if most people aren't going to believe him and if they might even kill him for it. Ah, the Lord said, you do not get the point. There is a remnant there you know nothing about. They are obscure, unorganized, inarticulate, each one rubbing along as best he can. They need to be encouraged because when everything has gone to the dogs, they are the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And meanwhile, your preaching will reassure them and keep them hanging on. Your job is to take care of the remnant. So be off now and set about it. Now, this is a really interesting passage because the Lord is basically telling Isaiah that his job is not to preach to the masses, but it's to preach to the remnant, to the people who are to rebuild the world once it's been torn down. And so he also distinguishes between what is the difference between the remnant and the masses. And he says, the mass man is one who has neither the force of intellect to apprehend the principles of a humane life, nor the force of character to adhere to those principles. The remnant are those who by force of intellect are able to apprehend these principles and by force of character are able to cleave to them. So the key difference between the masses and the remnant is not how high society you are or, or what job you have. It really comes down to your character and your principles. If you are someone who has a very clear set of principles and you always will abide by them, no matter what the rules are, no matter what the peer pressure is around you, you are the remnant. Whereas if you're someone who will just always go in the direction of the herd, regardless of principles, you are part of the masses. 
And so the Lord gives Isaiah this piece of advice that rather than trying to appeal to the masses and water down your message so that you can get more followers, more people listening to you, instead, do not water down your message. Preach directly to the remnant because the remnant will always want what is best and what is true, and they will be dissuaded if you try to water it down or try to appeal to everyone. And so, quote, Isaiah preached to the masses only in the sense that he preached publicly. Anyone who liked might listen. Anyone who liked might pass by. He knew that the remnant would listen. And knowing also that nothing was to be expected of the masses under any circumstances, he made no specific appeal to them, did not accommodate his message to their measure in any way, and did not care two straws whether they heeded it or not. And so the final thing I'll say from the story of Isaiah's job is that the Lord gives two pieces of insight about the remnant. He says, quote, In any given society, the remnant are always an unknown quantity. You do not know and will never know more than two things about them. First, that they exist. Second, that they will find you. Except for these two certainties, working for the remnant means working in impenetrable darkness. So this is very interesting that the only things you can know about the remnant are that they exist and that they will find you. And in order for them to find you, you need to not water down your message. You need to give out a clear signal so that the remnant can find you. So I, I love this story because it really gives incredible insight into the way the course of history changes and what drives that change. And it reminds me of a lecture from Alan Watts where he talks about the foreground and the background. And a foreground can only exist if there is a background that is different from the foreground. So through these archetypes, we can kind of understand the masses as the background. They will follow the herd in any direction for their own safety. The remnant are the ones who actually drive change by adhering to their core principles. And then you also have the parasites, which are those who manipulate the masses for their own gain. So oftentimes they will turn the masses against the remnant or they'll manipulate the masses. So the masses think the parasites are out to help them, like where are one of you, we're on your side, but really they're just siphoning value from the masses for their own gain. So these are the three main archetypes to understand in this model, the remnant, the masses, and the parasites. Now, I think that it's really interesting to look at some examples of how this appears not only in the Bible and in the Bitcoin world, but also in other popular media and popular stories. One is The Matrix, which is perhaps the ultimate remnant movie. So in The Matrix, the remnant are the people who are unplugged from The Matrix. And you can actually categorize the remnant into three different groups, dormant remnant, active remnant, and radical remnant. So you might consider people who are waiting to be unplugged from The Matrix as dormant remnant. They have the ability to be unplugged. They know something's not right. They have that splinter in their mind. They can tell something is up, but they haven't yet been unplugged. They haven't yet taken the leap of faith. Then you have the active remnant, which are the people of Zion, everyone who's been unplugged, all the people who are fighting for freedom against the control of the machines. And then you have an inner more group, which is the radicals. And that would be someone like Neo, the one or also perhaps Morpheus and Trinity, the ones who are the most radical, who are making the biggest difference. And this tends to follow an 80-20 rule where 80% of the masses, 20% of the remnant, but within that 20% of the remnant, 
80% are dormant, only 20% are active, and within the active, 80% are just regular active remnants and 20% are radical. So you can kind of see these interlocking circles of being more and more radical as far as your ability to effectuate change. And Neo is obviously the innermost circle of that. He is the one. And here's a great quote from Morpheus where he explains how this works. He says, quote, The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. But when you're inside, you look around. What do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged, and many of them are so inured, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. So I love this quote because it gives a lot of insight into the masses. The masses are the people that the unplugged humans are trying to save, but while they are still plugged into the matrix, they are your enemy. They can turn into an agent at any time and come after you. And this is a great way of understanding how the masses are weaponized against the remnant by the parasites. And the parasites, of course, are the machines. They are the ones that are using humans as batteries and deceiving them into thinking they are living a normal life, while in reality, they are trapped inside the Matrix. And here is one of the great villains of the Matrix, Cypher, who was himself a remnant. He was unplugged from the Matrix, but then he became a traitor because he wanted to go back into the blissful ignorance of being one of the masses. And so he actually turns against the remnant on behalf of the parasites and there's this famous scene where he says i don't want to remember nothing and i want to be rich there's another great example of the remnant as it relates to greek and roman history there's a quote from heraclitus and he says out of every 100 men 10 shouldn't even be there 80 are just targets nine are the real fighters and we are lucky to have them for they make the battle ah but the one one is a warrior, and he will bring the others back. I love this quote from Heraclitus because it shows that this model of the remnant has existed since ancient times, since we've been fighting these ancient battles. And when you think about an ancient battle, there really is this sense of one warrior can really turn the tides by being heroic, by putting his brethren before himself, and by really doing what is right for everyone. And so one way to understand the model of the remnant through this Heraclitus quote is, the remnant is the one warrior who will bring the others home. So he is basically like Neo. He's the one that is going to turn the tides of the battle. Whereas the masses are perhaps the 80 who are just targets, or maybe the people back home who they're fighting for. And then the parasites are probably the 10 who shouldn't even be there, who are probably doing more harm than good, or perhaps the opposing army, which they're fighting against. And this also brings the model of the hero's journey into mind, because whether you're talking about the Odyssey or the Aeneid or any of these great stories, the hero's journey is this recurring theme. And one could argue that everyone's life is a hero's journey. You have this call to action, you have a refusal to that call, you find some sort of mentor, you cross the threshold, you battle all of these enemies, and you eventually have some 
road back home, you have some reward at the end, at the end you're the master of the two worlds, you go through this narrative arc. And this is the way that history changes. It changes by someone like Aeneas founding what would become the Roman Empire, or someone like Odysseus journeying back home to Ithaca to put off the parasites that are trying to take his kingdom and return and restore order. And man can be thought of as a being which creates order. And so you have these periods where there's one order that gets kind of stale and then times turn bad. And then you have a new hero who shakes things up and creates a new, better order. And then the world reforms around that new reality. So let's look at a couple of historic examples really quickly to understand the remnant's role throughout history. One great example is Galileo. If you recall, Galileo is sometimes called one of the fathers of modern astronomy. He was someone who realized that the Earth is not the center of the universe. In fact, the Earth rotates around the Sun rather than the Sun and all the other celestial bodies rotating around the Earth. And this was a really radical idea at the time, and it was very threatening to the church, which put the Earth as the center of everything. And so you can think of the model of Galileo as Galileo was the remnant and other open-minded scientists who were willing to entertain Galileo's ideas and his studies, those were members of the remnant. The masses were the people who were afraid of Galileo's discovery. They were afraid of what the earth rotating around the sun might mean for their faith. And so they were willing to support his persecution. And of course, the parasite was the church who sentenced him to death for spreading his own discoveries. And this was seen as a threat to the church of the dominance of Earth being the center of the universe and the church as being the main force that ruled over the Earth at that time. And so they put him to death for his radical ideas. Another example throughout history is Henry Ford, where he had this famous quote that he said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. So this gets to the idea of anyone who has a total paradigm shift with their technology or with their invention, their innovation, they are going against what the masses expect. Because if it were up to the masses, the masses will always just want incremental improvements on what they already know and what they already feel comfortable with. Whereas someone who is a radical innovator might come up with a much better way of doing things that the masses would never accept until it's already become a reality and it's really easy for them to make the leap, to shift from a horse-drawn carriage to a Ford Model T, for example. And the parasite in this example of Henry Ford would probably be the government, government that's trying to hold back innovation, that's trying to overly regulate, tax, inflate. And this is much more of an issue nowadays, and it's much harder to innovate in the year 2022 than it was in the years of Henry Ford. Another great example is Nazi Germany. There's this famous picture where you can see all of the members of the Nazi party saluting when they're listening to a speech from Hitler. But then you see this one brave man folding his arms, not saluting, even though he is putting himself at risk by not saluting. And then there's this quote that, from James Cann that says, observe the masses and do the opposite. So Nazi Germany is a great example the remnant in this case would be the one man who chooses not to do the Nazi salute, even though he's putting his own safety at risk. The masses are everyone else who's doing the Nazi salute. 
and the parasite would be Hitler who's giving the speech who is manipulating the masses. Now let's look at 2022 example. For 2022, the present, the remnant is Satoshi and it is Bitcoiners. And you can look at the dormant active radical model in the same way that we saw in the matrix where dormant remnant today would be pre-Bitcoiners. People who know that inflation is getting bad and it's probably not going to get better. They realize that the fiat system has some fundamental flaws and they are actively looking for ways to improve their financial situation. But they haven't quite adopted Bitcoin. They are pre-Bitcoiners. This would be the equivalent of a dormant remnant. And then the active remnant would be people who are Bitcoiners, people who save in Bitcoin, people who spread the Bitcoin word. Maybe they have a Bitcoin podcast. Maybe they write articles. Maybe they help with Bitcoin core development. And then the radical group would be people who are doing the most to separate money and state to restore freedom to individuals. Satoshi would be number one. He's kind of like Neo, the one who really is way more impactful than anyone else. But then you have other really important characters like for instance, Jack Dorsey, who just started a legal defense fund for Bitcoin developers. He's also starting an open source Bitcoin mining company. And you have people like Jack Maulers who created Strike. You have people like Michael Saylor who really spearheaded the idea of using credit to acquire more Bitcoin. And all of these people are essentially leading the charge in separating money in state so that when the masses are ready, they will have a great option. They will not be left hanging when the fiat system house of cards comes down. They will be able to simply adopt the Bitcoin standard. So in this sense, the masses are no coiners, people who do not have Bitcoin. They may also be altcoiners, people who still haven't realized that what we need to do is separate money and state, not simply try to get more fiat gains by getting some dog coin and then exchanging it for fiat, right? That's the key difference between altcoiners and Bitcoiners is Bitcoiners are trying to exit the fiat system altogether, separate money and state, relinquish the power of the money printer altogether, whereas altcoiners are just trying to get more fiat gains. And then the parasite would be the fiat system itself. And I think it is really crucial here to remark that it's not that the people are the key problem in today's financial system. It is the system itself that is the problem. And the Cantillon effect describes this reality that we are experiencing where those who are closest to the money printers benefit the most, whereas those who are furthest away from the money printers benefit the least. So those closest to the money printers, the cantillionaires are the central bankers, the politicians, the lobbyists, also these global organizations that serve as the public interface between the money printing institutions and public institutions. These are the IMF, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, the WHO. These are the parasites in today's modern world. This is a really telling chart that just shows where we are in the clown world saga where you can see the total debt to gdp ratio throughout time with the actual world wars that were experienced at these different times and the very clear trend you can see at a glance is that whenever debt to gdp reaches a certain high you get a war so in the 1860s and 70s you had the u.s civil war then the debt to gdp went down it rose again 
in the early 1900s, then you had World War I. Then the debt to GDP declined, then it rose again drastically to the 1940s, and then that's when you had World War II. Then the debt to GDP went down a lot since World War II, and now it is at an even higher point than it was during World War II. It's about 130% debt to GDP. So based on history, we are about to experience a World War III. But like I mentioned in the last episode, it is very unlikely that this will be a hot war, given nuclear arms proliferation and given how catastrophic it would be for everyone involved. That's why it cannot be a world war to reset the debt books this time. It has to be some other type of great reset. And pandemic is a great option because it gives everyone a sense of fear. It gives a reason to track everyone. It gives a reason to roll out things like CBDCs to see where everyone is going and control their movements, whether they're in physical space or cyberspace. And you can see here that the COVID pandemic is kind of petering out in the sense that Omicron is less severe than previous variants and Mexico just removed all travel restrictions. So certainly some countries are getting even more intense, like Australia, Austria, Germany, Israel. These places are having very strict controls in regard to COVID, but other places are opening up. So the question is, what will the next crisis be that the parasites tell the masses about so that the masses are afraid and they are basically willing to do whatever the parasites tell them. And so that might be climate change. It might be a cyber attack, cyber terrorism. It might be a hot war like what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. But one thing is for certain, and that's that there will always be a crisis narrative from the parasite class because that's what controls the masses, whereas the remnant are never fooled by this. The remnant realize that it's all a monetary event. This is all being driven by the need for resetting the debt books, given where we are in the debt to GDP cycle. And these crises are basically a means to an end. So if you are listening to this episode and you've made it this far, you are likely a remnant. Now, you might be a dormant remnant who is still considering what you really believe and what you'd like to do with your time, money, and energy. You may be an active remnant. You may already be a Bitcoiner. You may have already woken up. And if you're an active remnant, you may think about becoming a radical remnant, someone who leads the charge, who starts a local Bitcoin business or just starts saving in Bitcoin or starts a Bitcoin podcast or does whatever small steps you might decide to do to wake up the people around you. So I would say wherever you are, it is a process. You are never entirely one identity or the other. I think everyone has a little kernel of remnant within them. And it's about listening to your own intuition and staying true to what you know to be true and not letting fear control your thoughts and your decisions. That is what will allow you to awaken your inner remnant and be able to lead the world in a better direction. As we get to the end of this episode, I I want to bring up this quote. It always makes me feel much more optimistic about the future. It's from Margaret Mead. She says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So I want to end with two visions of the future. The first view is the Malthusian view. This is the view taken by the globalists, by the people of the World Economic Forum, 
all of these politicians who are implementing these lockdowns, these mandates, trying to roll out CBDCs, all of the fiat cronies essentially have this Malthusian view, which is that there's too many humans on Earth, we're spending too much energy, we're hurting the climate, we need to control the herd, we need censorship, we need vaccine passports, we need mandates, we need full financial control, full control over the resources. This is a scarcity mindset, this is a fear-driven mindset. And it's a mindset of being at the end of history, essentially thinking that we've already had all the great innovations that we've ever could expect to have. And now it's important that we just limit human activity, that we control everyone and basically stop all innovation and all disruptive creation. And so this is a, a terrible view for, for humanity. And it's a really terrifying view when you think about what it would mean for the individual where individuals will no longer have free will. They won't be able to go on their own hero's journey where they can disrupt the status quo and enable a new possibility for future generations. This is the view taken by globalists. And if you adhere to the lockdowns and the mandates and the mask wearing and you accept CBDCs and you go quietly into the night of totalitarianism, you are on this side. So not making a decision for Bitcoin the default decision is you're on the side of the Malthusians, the side of the parasites. The other vision of the future is the optimistic view, which I believe is represented most aptly by Bitcoin. This is the view that, on the contrary, energy is not bad. We should be trying to harness even more energy so that we can do bigger and better things. We should strive to become a Kardashev type 3 civilization, where not only do we harness all the resources of the planet, but we harness all the resources of the star and eventually all the resources of the galaxy. And it's not that we have too many humans. In fact, we might not have enough humans. We should be trying to send a million humans to Mars. We should set up a base on the moon. We should colonize the stars. We should be developing new technologies around nuclear energy and fusion reactors and other ways that we can harness the energy and do far more than we've ever been able to do before. Let's empower people to innovate and improve the world. So this latter view is an abundance mindset, a hope-driven mindset. It has faith that humanity will prevail. It's the sense that we are at the beginning of infinity rather than at the end of history. So it's really up to you which view you take, whether you take this Malthusian view of the globalist, the cynical, stodgy view that the good times are behind us and we just need to manage all the terrible things that humans do. Or you have this other view where humans are the caretakers of Earth and we are going to lead it into the future. This is a really great meme just to distill these two choices that stand before us. The meme shows a person with a fork in the road and it says, which way, modern man? On the left hand, we have bodily autonomy, Bitcoin, permaculture, agorism, sovereignty, freedom otherwise known as the Renaissance 2.0 or the Bitcoin Renaissance. And in the other direction, we have vaccine mandates, CBDCs, digital IDs, social credit scores, panopticon level tyranny. So the choice is yours. We can wake up every day and decide to take one small step in either direction towards total freedom and prosperity and a new future of hope for humanity or the path to tyranny where we essentially have had the best times of humanity behind us. I know which side I'm on, and if you're listening to this, I think I know which side you're on. Thank you for tuning in. 